Hello, everyone. This is Joe Alviani of O'Neill & Associates, and this is OA on Healthcare. We're well into phase two of the state's reopening of businesses and increased social activity. Things seem to be going pretty well here in Massachusetts, but not so well in the nearly 15 or so other states that are experiencing increases in both coronavirus cases and hospitalizations. This fact should certainly caution us that COVID-19 is still with us and that we should continue our social distancing and wearing masks as required. Until we have a vaccine, we'll not be out of these COVID-19 woods. And speaking of getting us on a pathway out of the COVID-19 woods, we're pleased to have with us today, Dr. Andrew Levin, Chief Executive and Chief Scientific Officer of Gefera Diagnostics of Framingham. Gefera Diagnostics is a startup life sciences company that focuses on addressing the public health challenges of global infectious diseases by developing accessible products for clinical diagnostics and research applications. Currently, Kefera is working to develop a home-based COVID-19 antibody test. Founded in 2016 by Dr. Levin, Kefera has been located at 1 Grand Street in Framingham since August of 2019. Before founding Kefera, Dr. Levin spent over 20 years in the development and commercialization of diagnostic test products for emerging infectious diseases, including HIV, Lyme disease, cystocercosis, Hydatid disease, SARS, anthrax, and others, and brought five assays through clinical trials to FDA clearance as in vitro diagnostics. Dr. Levin received his AB in biochemistry from Princeton University and PhD in molecular biology from the University of Wisconsin. He carried out research as the Centre de Genétique Moléculaire in France under a NATO grant and completed postdoctoral training at Harvard University prior to founding his first company, Immunetics. Dr. Levin, welcome to OA on Healthcare, and thank you so much for taking the time from your important work to be with us today. Uh, you're very welcome, and thanks for the invitation to talk with you on the podcast today. Uh, let's start our discussion with your motivation for starting the work of uh, Kefera Diagnostics. Okay. Well, I, I like solving real-world problems, and I was always interested in using my background in biochemistry and molecular biology to do something practical in the field of public health. It turned out that the, the immunological techniques that I learned while I was a graduate student were directly applicable to infectious disease diagnostics. And uh, I've always found the biology and chemistry of pathogens uh, fascinating, um, sort of an example of nature at its most baroque. Uh, that sent me down a career path which led to starting the first company, and since that wasn't enough, on to the second, uh, which is <coughs> Kefera Diagnostics. And I began to believe early on that uh, one way to have a positive impact in the world of public health and medicine is to reduce science to practice and offer solutions in a tangible and broadly accessible form. Uh, for me, that meant translating new diagnostic methods into products which could be manufactured and made commercially available to the people who need them. I've been interested in working on infectious disease diagnostics, uh, not only for the developed world, but also for underserved populations in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. 
uh, and we have ongoing projects for development of parasitic disease tests for some pathogens that are probably unfamiliar to an American audience, but affect millions of people in these parts of the world, uh, such as Chagas disease, uh, tapeworms, uh, and liver flukes. Uh, I feel that until the appearance of COVID-19, maybe the infectious disease field was looked at as rather lackluster from the business perspective in comparison with other fields such as cancer and heart disease. Um, but I think COVID-19 has brought the infectious disease field to the forefront, for now at least. And I like to think that I can make some small contribution to it through our work at Kefera. Uh, so you've located your headquarters in the city of Framingham, where there seems to be a growing cluster of life science companies. How did you arrive at Framingham as a location over Boston or Cambridge? And what do you see as the benefits of Framingham as the business location for Kefera Diagnostics? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an easy question to answer. Uh, my last company was located in the seaport downtown, uh, where I think I had the distinction of being the first biotech company in the Marine Industrial Park. And I commuted back and forth from the western suburbs for years. Before the seaport, we had been in Cambridge. So I know both venues very well. By the time I left the seaport, the rent downtown had risen uh, astronomically to rates that didn't make any sense for a startup. And the commute became gradually more arduous, as is well known to those who have to do it every day. Uh, and it wasn't just me, but also my colleagues, many of whom live in the suburbs. So I began to look uh, west, in particular in towns where there were old factory or mill buildings, which I think make great settings for a laboratory operation. Some searching and a bit of luck led me to the Denison Complex in Framingham, which is a cluster of beautiful turn-of-the-century brick factory buildings where we were able to build out our laboratory and office um, over the past year. It's a 15-minute commute for me now. It seems like a real luxury still. And Framingham is a community which has been undergoing a rejuvenation downtown, and we like the idea of being part of that. Uh, we're still only a few minutes from the Mass Pike, and we can get downtown easily enough whenever we need to. Um, I thought at first that I might suffer from postpartum depression after I left downtown, but that didn't happen. Uh, instead, I began to breathe more easily, and I feel like I've taken back a chunk of my life that was lost to commuting before. As we were, uh, we're getting more settled in Framingham, we're also discovering more and more resources nearby, which has been fun and rewarding. Uh, we do look forward to local eateries being able to reopen, uh, like Jack's Abbey, which is across the street from us, which is a great place for uh, talking informally or to celebrate good lab results uh, if and when we get them. You know, as uh, a former Secretary of Economic Affairs during that period of time when bio uh, and the biotech industry was really uh, at its infancy in uh, Massachusetts, I'm constantly amazed at the concentration level of growth that we've experienced. So I, I, I certainly understand uh, your decision making, particularly as we see what has happened in Boston and Cambridge with respect to uh, both the concentration and the rents uh, <laughs> yes. in those uh, jurisdictions. So uh Congratulations on, on finding this uh, wonderful location 
uh, in Framingham. Um, you know, I'm sort of interested in in terms of you know both your location there and and what you're planning is sort of the next steps for growth of Cofera at, at that location in Framingham. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're going to be launching a CLIA testing laboratory uh, service out of our facility at Grant Street soon. Uh, and the plan is to make our COVID antibody test broadly available uh, through the CLIA lab. Uh, provided we achieve regulatory approvals, we expect to offer testing to anyone who can send in a finger prick blood sample, as well as to uh, people who can get a standard blood draw. Uh, we're also planning to launch uh, a highly sensitive and quantitative COVID antibody test that was developed by one of our research collaborators, which we believe will be a useful tool to answer the question, uh, what is my antibody titer, which may help shed some light on the degree of immunity people who have recovered from COVID-19 might now have. Um, We have a strong focus on COVID-19 testing right now, as you can imagine, but we also have six funded projects developing tests for other infectious diseases ranging from Lyme disease to Zika virus. So uh, we are busy. So well before you founded Gefera Diagnostics in 2016, you worked um, on a test for the original SARS virus uh, during uh, that outbreak in 2002-2003. Would you take a a few minutes to describe the differences between the SARS and COVID-19 viruses? And, Mm. and, And now nearly 20 years after working on the SARS tests, what do you see as the fundamental differences in the work that you did then and what you're doing currently on the antibody testing for COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, as far as the relationship between the two viruses, both the original SARS virus, which caused the outbreak in 2002 and three, and COVID-19 are coronaviruses, which are a large family of zoonotic viruses, meaning transmitted from animals to people, uh, which include a number of fairly pathogenic ones. The original SARS virus and COVID-19 are both in the subfamily called beta coronaviruses, and they're structurally similar with about uh, 80% overall DNA sequence homology, and they both bind to the same cellular receptor, uh, the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 or ACE2. Uh, So they both use the same tried-and-true attack strategy to infect human cells. Uh, But the differences are important. Um, Structurally, COVID-19 virus is coated with sugar molecules, which protect it from immune attack, and that coating is different and perhaps denser than in the original SARS virus. Uh, The protein that forms the spikes that you see in every image of COVID-19, called the spike protein, also differs about 25% in sequence uh, between the two viruses. This has been important for our work um, as we've been mapping the human immune response to individual peptides, which are short stretches of protein. We found that some of the peptides that were very sensitive targets for the immune response to the original SARS virus and enabled us to develop the, the test back then Uh, those same peptides are not at all good targets for the COVID-19 immune response, but others are recognized almost identically. This is important information. It helps us design uh, antibody and antigen tests 
that will perform uh, very sensitively and also very specifically. So let's say our overall approach in the two cases to developing tests is similar, uh, but along the way, we've learned what the differences are between the viruses, and we're trying to take advantage of those, those differences to engineer uh, a test for COVID-19 now. So obviously, during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, we've heard a great deal about antibody testing and its potential. Uh, would you sort of describe uh, uh, in, in somewhat layman terms how antibodies work in the body to combat viruses? Yeah. Uh, so antibodies are proteins in the blood that are part of the adaptive immune system which we rely on for protection from viruses and other pathogens. Uh, antibodies are secreted by lymphocytes that have to undergo a learning curve to recognize the pathogen. And that learning curve means that the antibody's ability to bind a virus such as COVID-19 increases over time, um, going from like zero to 100 or so over a period of weeks. So all antibodies are custom products in effect. At the molecular level, the antibody is a structure that is complementary to the structure of the virus that it, it is binding, which we refer to as a lock and key mechanism, where you can visualize it like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that fit together. The complementary structure that the antibody binds is called an antigen. So an antibody floating around in the blood or tissue will come across a complementary viral antigen, which could be part of a COVID-19 viral particle and bind to it tightly. The binding by the antibody might itself prevent the virus from entering and infecting its host, in which case it's called a neutralizing antibody, or it could stimulate other cells in the blood to scavenge up the virus and break it down or inactivate it internally. Ideally, the lymphocytes that produce these antibodies maintain their learning curve over a period of years and are ready to produce more of the same antibody if the host is ever attacked again by the same virus or pathogen. That's how long-term immunity works, which is also the principle that vaccines take advantage of. There have been um, conflicting reports about the effectiveness of antibodies and antibody testing in combating the COVID-19 virus. Do you believe that the potential of antibody testing and antibodies as an immunity in controlling COVID-19 have been exaggerated? Um, I, I wouldn't call it exaggerated exactly. I, I think antibody testing is a work in progress whose role in managing COVID-19 is evolving based on discoveries that are happening in real time. Uh, some of the early enthusiasm, I would say, was fanned by media attention and, and somewhat overtook scientific reality in the public eye, at least. Uh, some of the early tests that appeared on the market, you know, early antibody tests, uh, were put together, let us say, uh, hastily and turned out to be less accurate than claimed, uh, which has perhaps led to an equally uh, exaggerated counterreaction in some quarters. Um, I, the reality, at least in my view, is that interpreting the immune response to COVID or to any other pathogen uh, takes time and, and lots of experimental work, and it's difficult to come to overarching conclusions quickly. But you know, we have a culture that's very thirsty for news and tends to want complicated things boiled down to sound bites. And science, unfortunately, can be complicated. 
I think the, the good news is that with so many labs working on this question, progress is being made at a much faster pace than was typical before COVID. And I think we still have a lot to learn. Speaking of that, there has recently been some very promising news coming out of Oxford University in the UK concerning a steroid that is already on the market and its successful early results in reducing the rate of death in patients seriously ill with COVID-19. How does that discovery, if at all, affect your work? Well, that's on the, the therapeutic side. Uh, and, you know, of course, everyone wants therapies of, of whatever kind can be developed. Uh, and, and we do, too. I think uh, that's, that's something that may affect the immune response, uh, that, that particular drug. We don't know what its effect on antibody generation or uh, the, the kinetics of the immune response uh, are or likely to be. So uh, if that drug turns out to, uh, to work as promised and, and becomes uh, adapt, adopted widely, um, of course, it would be helpful to be able to study the immune response in patients who are taking the drug and, and see if it uh, leads us to modify uh, our designs for testing antibodies or not. And right now, we don't have enough information to, to be able to say uh, much of anything, I guess, and, until we, we see where this goes. So let's, let's get to um, your test in particular. Uh, would you describe how your self-testing protocol would work for consumers? Um, it'll be fairly simple and straightforward. Uh, someone who wants to be tested will call or email our lab and uh, we'll we will mail out a kit for home collection of a finger stick blood sample. The kit has everything the user needs, including a disposable lancet, a collection tube, and a prepaid mailer to send the sample back to the lab. Uh, it should take about uh, 15 minutes or so to collect a few drops of blood and package it up for shipment. In Massachusetts, I believe, it's uh, still necessary to have a doctor's order for a home test. Uh, the lab will receive the sample, we'll test it promptly, and we'll email the results back. Right now, our, our, in our initial format, we're going to provide a yes-no answer, but we're heading towards a quantitative assay. And what is your plan for identifying and recruiting volunteers for the testing? We do need volunteers to, to prove that the approach works and to generate the data that will be needed regulatory agencies to review the test and the home collection method. Uh, we, published, we publicized our study on a variety of social media. Uh, it's been mentioned in several recent articles, including one in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and that's been very helpful. That led to responses from some people who've been very eager to help us by organizing the collection of blood samples from their communities. We're hoping to start uh, one of these collections shortly and we're always open to more help of this sort from anyone who's interested. Once we identify volunteers willing to be tested, we hook them up with our study coordinator by phone, who will qualify them and make the arrangements to get them the home testing kit. Sort of one um, broad question here. Do you believe that the only way for ultimately controlling the coronavirus and assuring a safe return to 
relatively full economic and social activity is the discovery of a vaccine? Um, well, ultimate is a good way of putting it. Um, vaccines have made it possible for us to forget about uh, the threat of diseases like smallpox, uh, polio, tetanus, which used to kill people routinely. So when they work, they can work very well. And I would like to be optimistic about the chances for a COVID vaccine, especially given recent news from some of the vaccine developers. Uh, but we should acknowledge the challenges, honestly. Um, going back to the original SARS virus, no vaccine was developed in the end for, for SARS. So we don't have that as a precedent. Um, likewise, vaccines for animal coronaviruses have also been very challenging to develop. Uh, with no, no complete successes to my knowledge. It's also worth noting that after 30 years of work towards a vaccine for HIV, we still don't have one that performs with greater than about 30% efficacy, which is certainly not for lack of effort. Uh, but while HIV continues to be a major global problem, we do now have combination drug regimens, which are highly effective and they allow HIV positive people to live and work in relatively normal circumstances for long periods of time. So between the development of new drugs and maybe use of convalescent plasma to treat COVID patients, maybe we should also look at a version of reality where COVID does not go away and we don't have a 100% effective vaccine, but we can keep it at bay with various drug and immune treatments. I think the the overarching question is going to be what price society will put on 100% safety versus other scenarios with varying degrees of risk and how that risk is going to be distributed, which is a discussion for another day. But ultimately, those of us working on scientific solutions to the COVID pandemic have to be thinking about the cost-benefit ratio if any of these solutions are adopted. Are you concerned at all about this? Um rush to judgment with respect to trying to find a vaccine, um, the rush to judgment that seems in some ways to be um, a result of political imperatives? Well, of course, I, I think as, as a scientist, uh, I do believe in the value of uh, data and uh, of experiments which try to, to get at the underlying truth. Um, and I think to prove that a vaccine works is not a, a fast or, or a simple undertaking. Uh, it takes a lot of work and it takes a certain amount of time. It's hard to bring a baby about in less than about nine months, no matter how much money you throw at it and how much pressure you put on. Uh, and I think to some extent we have that problem that of course there's there's a great pressure being brought to bear on vaccine development, and, and there's a lot of willingness to, to go forwards and, and do the best we can. But as I said, uh, vaccine development is a scientific problem. It's not an engineering problem alone. Uh, there are real scientific questions that have to be solved here. I think the, the information we have um, hasn't really proven that uh, 100% effective vaccine can come about, although it, it's possible, and I certainly hope it will happen. But I think we have to be very careful of not allowing uh, the sort of irrational pressures that we all feel to uh, overtake the reality, you know, scientific reality, 
as to whether or not a vaccine is is really going to be effective or not. Uh, and uh, there have been incidents in the past when vaccine development and thinking of polio resulted in uh, in uh, errors in production, which led to deaths. Uh, that's always a possibility if you rush things or don't take account of the data that we have. So I think that um, while we all feel the same pressure, we all want to get to the same place, uh, there are really serious concerns that we have to, to acknowledge uh, and, uh, and not overlook. And I think that uh, uh, understanding where the, you know, what, what direction the scientific data uh, point and what, what is feasible, what is not feasible uh, is going to be really important. So uh, I hope that there will be general, that there will be patience and willingness on the part of uh, both the government and uh, people in general to let the vaccine development process uh, go forwards in a rational, uh, data-driven, scientific fashion and hopefully get to the end point we want. Uh, and that that process isn't, uh, uh, <clears throat> let's say, overtaken by uh, political or, or other concerns. Dr. Levin, thank you so much for uh, your frank and, and instructive uh, interview today and, and for the important work that you and your colleagues are doing in Framingham at Kefera Diagnostics. It's a, a critical step in our path back to uh, a sense of both security and normalcy, whatever form that may take. Uh, and again, for those listening, uh, could you describe uh, again how people might volunteer to participate in your antibody testing efforts? We have a, uh, a website uh, where we have a, a, uh, a page that gives the contact information for a study coordinator, and people are uh, welcome to uh, call, call or email the study coordinator and uh, say if they're willing to participate, study coordinator will uh, qualify them. And uh, if they qualify, we'll send out a collection kit and they'll be part of the study and we'll be very appreciative of that. Great. And what is that website? www.kefera.com. Well, thank you again for being with us today. Yes, and thank you again for inviting me to speak with you on the program. Our guest today on OA on Healthcare has been Dr. Andrew Levin, Chief Executive and Chief Scientific Officer of Gefera Diagnostics of Framingham. This is Joe Alviani of O'Neill & Associates, and this is OA on Healthcare. Thanks for listening, and please...